This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, good morning. Radiotherapy, RRR, Sunday, the 2nd of June. Have I got that right? Yeah. Yeah, second day of winter. Second second day. Time is marching on. Time is marching on. Uh, big thanks to uh, the team at Radio Marinara for another hour of all things wet and salty and a special happy birthday shout-out to the fabulous Dr Bron Burton. Happy birthday, Bron. Uh, she's... No, we're not... Got, don't have her attention at the moment. There's cake out there, that's why. She's distracted, yeah. She's I've distracted. seen it. It is <laughs> huge. Huge, huge, huge. Uh, and that voice you hear is uh, my um, very esteemed colleague, Dr Vyom Sharma. How are you, Dr Sharma? Very esteemed, apparently. Yeah, yeah. I'm good, I'm good. <laughs> when I'm in here with Doolittle, he keeps changing my uh, job description, so I might just keep changing adjectives to describe you. <laughs> um, They're all going on the CV, don't worry. That's right, yeah, yeah. Um, are you well? I am very well. Uh, flu vaccinated and uh, protected. I'm feeling good. Just last night I saw that um, apparently the flu is just going bananas. You know what's interesting this season? So I um, I kept testing people with uh, with you know viral PCR testing, as we say, um, all throughout summer. And I never stopped seeing flu right from December onwards. And in New South Wales they've reported... Uh, Compared to this time last year, they've now got three times the cases uh, they otherwise would have had. We've had numerous deaths, so the flu's really taking grip this year. Mm. I um I had a really rough year last year, but and it's not been this as bad this year. But what I noticed was that I haven't been knocked out, but it's lasting longer. Do you know what I mean? So I'm the fatigue, the headachey, the aches and painsy kind of thing. Well, this is one of the issues with the flu in that it's different every season, and even within a season, there's several different strains going on. The problem is that it's this virus that just mutates differently every time. So, for example, you know, influenza A type of viruses they're a lot milder than influenza B, but those mm. strains will mutate, and sometimes it's the fever's more predominant, the, it's the length of time or the severity. It changes every every season, really. Yep. At the front line, do you know, are you hearing anything about the uh, rates of um, people getting the uh, jab? I At the front line, no, I'm not actually hearing much about it. I can tell you anecdotally, which is a pretty weak uh, form of evidence, I suppose, uh, we're getting a lot of interest in the uh, in people getting the vaccine this year. last few years have really kind of scared people and especially reports of uh, several deaths in Australia because of the flu, yeah. uh, meaning that there's a lot more engagement with people with the flu vaccine. It's really good to see. The more people get the flu vaccine, the better, in a way, the vaccine gets, so to speak, or the effect of the vaccine through herd immunity. So the more people who get on board, the better. I had somebody just in passing, I didn't end up having a conversation about it, but it triggered my interest. It occurs to me to ask you, I heard somebody say that there's a bit of a, a, a layman's theory around the place that it's better to get the vaccine later in the season than earlier in the season. This is actually correct. Is that right? Yes. So the Royal Australian College of GPs actually recommends to get the flu vaccine like around now, maybe a few weeks ago, um, to coincide with the peak of uh, flu season. So the idea being that, you know, July, August, September, you know, those are the months you're far more likely to get the flu. You can get it earlier as well, but... The flu vaccine itself, it tends to have a kind of peak effectiveness for the first three months. Mm. That's not to say it's not effective afterwards, 
But yeah, like everything on in life, it's on a bit yeah. of a bell curve. So this probably is has been up until recently anyway the the very you know, ripe time to get the flu vaccine. So there is probably a thing such as getting it too early. Um, but you know, th- those uh, recommendations they're not as uh, as solid and loud as you'd expect uh, as you can expect. As you can imagine, rather, it's, it's a bit you know, mm. kind of controversial. Well, the flu vaccine's out. Are you saying I shouldn't get it now? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so it's an interesting one, but thankfully the College of GPs is, uh, is putting the word out, which is great. Good stuff. A um, couple other things caught my eye news-wise, um, one of which was, did you know that if you're passionate about your job, you're more likely to be exploited? Right. So Do I some, know this? Hmm. Yeah. Well, d- yes. personal experience. <laughs> I um, I read this with a great deal of interest. I thought, oh, hang on, here we go. Well, yeah. So this was actually studied. You're saying, so, or so a um um so social psychologists, as is their want, like to look at these behavioural matters in places like workplaces and so on. Um, and uh, they uh, took on a few different, you know, profiles of people in different sorts of uh, work. And um, it's not only that you're more likely to be exploited, um, you know, work extra hours, have more demands put on you, tighter deadlines, that sort of thing. The curious thing from a cultural, socio-cultural point of view is that it's seen by others to be more legitimate to exploit somebody who's passionate about their work than if they're not. To exploit. So in a way, I guess their thinking might be we're, we're just giving them what they want. What I they suppose. want to do. And and the experience of exploitation is seen as um, a demonstration of passion. So, uh-huh. by, so the observer, right? And so when you're thinking about workplace cultures and, you know, how... You know, we're not talking about one-on-one and necessarily um, malicious exploitation. It's probably part of it, um, you know. It probably even has some kind of, you know, cousin in bullying in a way. Um, but um, it's this casual acceptance that those who are more passionate will work harder. But you know, when you know, what's that 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 saying that if you want to get something done, give it to a busy person. Yeah, you know. Well, it certainly maps on, I suppose, with my experiences in training hospitals. Say something like surgery, where I really think you have to be very passionate to want to do it. You have to love every bit of it. Um, you, you basically get these group of people who all really like doing it, um, and they value working extremely hard. Um, and they, they just, you know, there's exploitation is, is rife there because there's a bit of a martyr complex that occurs as well. The, the more you give, the better, and the more it hurts, the better. And obviously it has rapidly diminishing returns and uh, people who profit from that exploitation. So it's good yep. we've got that in a, in a study. So you're saying in, in several different jobs and careers? Right, yeah. So they looked at a few. They looked Big at eight, eight different co- cohorts, a total of 2,400 uh, participants. So in in scientific terms that's that's large um and they looked um at things like uh workplace cultures around working on weekend working unpaid um handling tasks that weren't related to your job description um and and asked from the point of view of the of the person who was exploited there was air quotes there folks um exploited and um and from the employers and from those around them being um, medical registrars or surgical registrars yeah. are listening, they're going, are you talking about me? Well, that's right. And so they did make, they were able to make a distinction between how people felt about this 
depending on the nature of the job. So it was deemed more appropriate to um, exploit workers who were doing something that was seen to be, um, you know, almost vocational in type, you know, so doctors, um, PhD students. Oh, boy. Yep. Um, uh, social workers, um, the caring professions, basically. And so it was, and it was less acceptable to exploit somebody who's seen culturally, socially, um, to be doing a job that was seen to be more menial, um, you know, so store clerks or, you know, um, uh, perhaps lower paid administrators and things like that. Um, because, you know, they weren't doing it for the love of their work. That is irony, isn't it? The it is. The more you care, the worse you, deal you get. But, you know, workplace cultures, man, they, they, they're so, so relevant to our understanding of so much else that goes on around the world. Things like, you know, depression and anxiety and stress and family relationships. You know, if people, aren't, if people are spending as much time as they do at work and they're not happy or feeling valued or treated well, again, it's inevitable, right? You don't need a PhD in this to know that you're going to take that that angst and that experience elsewhere. Yeah, I think when it comes to dealing with people's psychological well-being, it's just impossible to ignore what most people are doing on most days for most of the day, for eight to ten hours a day. Mm-hmm. And often, I think early on in my practice, I certainly fall into that trap of kind of you know, seeing the work life is quite separate, just thing that people kind of you know, clock in and clock out of. And uh, it's really... It, it, you really not allowing yourself to, to understand, you know, how this person, what this person actually feels, just the roller coaster of emotions we all kind of go through. Yeah. Uh, in a workplace situation, you, you don't just turn off emotionally. It's often more charged mm. than uh, things are at home or on, on a weekend. Yeah, yep, no doubt. Um, I reckon a show in the near future about workplace cultures and stress and all of that sort of thing, Mike. I mean, we touched on it a bit last year, didn't we, with uh, burnout. And World Health Organisation just this week has recognised burnout, burnout as a medical, a medical condition. condition. Yeah. yeah. Um, and just very quickly in the last minute before we take a break and welcome our guest, um, an article in The Conversation this week uh, by a, um, a researcher, Lofty Belkia, from uh, McMaster University, did some studies and worked out that Big Pharma emits more greenhouse gases than the automotive industry. Oh, boy. How about that? Um, that which is saying a lot. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, if we, if everybody's daily life is alert to the uh, automotive industry, um, but if we actually think about it, and according to these researchers, it's Big Pharma are even bigger in terms of, you know, the waste, um, in terms of uh, the trade, and... Um, um, presumably something to do with the research as well. Um, And it's really, really quite significant. Um, So there you go. That's just a a by the way. That's an odd spot. Interesting. (laughs) Three, triple R. And welcome back, Radiotherapy, with myself, Panel Beater, and Dr. Sharma. And now we welcome our special guest for the morning, um, Dr. Elise Hill from RMIT's Neurodevelopment in Health and Disease Research Program. Welcome, Elise. Oh, thanks very much. It's really great to be here this morning. Fabulous to have you here. Um, we're going to be talking uh, all things gut and brain relations. Um, but to get us underway, how about you just tell us what it means to work in the neurodevelopment, health diseases, health 
and disease or in disease? Health and disease. Health and disease. <laughs> research yeah. program um, at RMIT. Well, I'm really lucky. I'm able to head up this fantastic team um, working on the gut-brain axis in the laboratories at RMIT and I get to work with talented young people. And what we're really interested in work is understanding how the nervous system is interacting with bacteria. But that the nervous system that we're really interested in is the nervous system that controls our gut. Which is interesting because I don't think people classically think of the gut having a nervous system and more importantly, like its own nervous system. I remember when someone actually told me that in like third year medical school, it's like th- that it's, it does its own kind of thing almost a little bit. And I was just like, really? Didn't I had no them. idea. No, sounded fake. <laughs> yeah, so it's amazing. So it's this huge mesh-like nervous system that extends all the way down the gastrointestinal tract. So it's basically, you know, two layers of muscle that help us contract and get food from one end to the other. And the number of neurons in there is is about the same as what we have in our spinal cord. So people Mm. just can't believe that we're carrying around a second brain. And it's really important. Can we um, define our terms there? I've heard this phrase, second brain, uh, a few times. And immediately, just because it's not my training, I just think of this grey matter in my skull. When we say second brain in the gut, what are we really saying? So, well, there's a lot of neurons and it's a, it's a brain that you need to keep alive, uh-huh. you know. Um, and, you know, we're dealing with this every day. If you think about when you get anxious, perhaps you have to stand up and talk to a lot of people and you feel like you suddenly want to run to the toilet, that's the second brain talking to your other brain. Uh, so these are... And, and they're butterflies? They're butterflies, yeah. So you're feeling anxious or, yeah, you just suddenly need to, yeah... Believe yeah. yourself. Yeah. But that's your second brain telling your main brain, hey, you know, I'm feeling anxious, I've got to do something about it. So it's really important in how we how we um, act out our everyday lives. Yeah. Because we just colloquially, we say we've got butterflies before a nervous um, or something that makes us nervous or we've got a gut feeling about somebody. Exactly. Or, it's uh, the gut feeling. The gut yeah. feeling. Um, what's, uh, what's the research agenda? What are, what's keeping you guys busy? We're really busy. Everywhere we look, we find something new, which is great. And so we're interested in um, this gut nervous system, in particular in in relation to disorders like autism. So we study mice that have uh, autism gene mutations. And so these mice are models of autism. And that's a big thing, by the way. That is a thing. It's Mm. it's well accepted and it's it's really well studied. Um, And what we're interested in is looking at their gut problems because a lot of people with autism, as well as a whole host of other things that they might have, have gut problems. So So it's interesting you you brought up there the autism gene mutation, uh, because it says a lot about, you know, how it is that this issue of autism, you know, kind of even uh, arises. Um, I mean, it's an an interesting term in and of itself, because there's a lot of these related terms that are thrown around, autism, Asperger's syndrome, autism spectrum disorder. Um, you know, so when when you say you're studying autism, so we're talking about mice that display behaviours that, that we ultimately see as similar to people with autism? Yeah, they're autism-relevant behaviours, and that's as good as we can get in a mouse because, mm. let's face it, a mouse is not a human. So we've, we've really got to put that first and foremost. We're studying it in a mouse, not a human. So it's not autism, but it's stuff that looks like autism. And um, when you get back to that gene question, well, it's not just one gene and we still don't know the cause of autism. So if someone has autism, we can't just do a a quick check. But what we do know is there's more than a thousand genes that have been implicated in autism and lots of them are related to how the nervous system works. 
Interesting. What's the um, uh, diagnosis of autism? Maybe just for some, um, for myself and for listeners, um, how do we know somebody's on the spectrum, which I'm sure is language that people are hearing? Oh, totally. Yeah. So, it's a, it's there's no quick and quick test, but it's um, based on behaviour. So, to be diagnosed with autism, you need to have social impairments and difficulties with communication. And you also need to um, show repetitive and or restrictive behaviours. And that's not enough in itself because we all have our own little quirks, mm, right? Yeah. Yep. So you're the all used to say, oh, that's me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And maybe there's lots of people thinking, oh, that's me. Yeah. But you need to have these um, traits that are at a level that are going to, you know, impair your life significantly every day. Yeah. And what's interesting about this, so they have to impair your life significantly, but even within that, there are people who are severely impacted uh, and there's people uh, in whom these issues are just a little bit quite subtle. So when we're talking about issues with social you know, kind of communication and, I guess, relationships and interaction, this can be everything from issues with uh, holding you know, kind of conversations that go back and forth, not being able to pick up on subtle bits of body language. You know, how do you say hi to your best friend versus someone you're at a party versus a receptionist you walk past, you know, kind of three, three, days, three times a day? Um, but... So that would almost seem like a little bit subtle, but we can go down the other end where there's severe issues with language to the point where some mm. people are, you know, quite completely, you know, kind of non-verbal or minimally mm. verbal. That's yeah. really actually more common than what I realised. Mm. About thirty percent of people with autism are actually minimally verbal, but I think only about eleven percent of those people turn up in studies. So oh. that's why you know we just don't hear about it. What's going on there? Well, they're really difficult to study, aren't they? <laughs> you know, That's right. if you're a psychologist, you're not going to opt for that option, no. are you? Because you want someone to answer your questions or read the questions and, and write a response. So uh-huh. it, people are delving into new ways of trying to study uh, this really important group of people with autism. But mm. back to what you were saying before, there's lots of different colours or flavours of mm. autism. Mm-hmm. Please. And um, so in the past, we've all been familiar with Asperger's syndrome and other other different labels within um, autism. Now it's all been looped back into this big umbrella term, autism spectrum disorder, or just autism. So it's kind of made it simpler. And it's been done partly to help us researchers, actually, because we were not getting so far with trying to lump people into different um, buckets. In fact, it's actually been one of the difficulties of lots of different buckets, perhaps too many buckets. It was getting quite difficult to doctors to diagnose. I mean, the way this all developed was kind of back in the 40s. uh, I think a psychiatrist, Kanna, came up with this term of autism to describe these kids who were kind of keeping to themselves. And if you think about that word autism, it's this auto is the Greek kind of prefix there. The idea being that it's this preoccupation with being, you know, keeping to yourself. Uh, to a morbid extent, I suppose. And pretty much the next year, I think, um, uh, the doc- the Austri- Austrian physician Asperger um, you know, also found something similar, but with kids who had far more language skills. It was only in the 80s when uh, a psychiatrist who actually had a child with autism, um, she kind of came up with this model of, oh, actually, well, there's we can say there's a spectrum. Far more severe, we'll say that's autism, you know, less severe we'll say that's Asperger's syndrome right. uh, to do with that Austrian physician who, who, who first described it. And, but it's only very late. I think it's only 2013 where we went. There were so many different little categories. Asperger's, autism, um, pervasive developmental disorder, no obvious cause. And the, uh, the DSM, which is the manual that lays out all the diagnoses, went, look, 
let's just have this umbrella term autism spectrum disorder some people are mild some people are not they've got their own, got their own strengths and weaknesses flavors as you go it's kind of described really and we just kind of go from there so hopefully it helps clear up some of the confusion for people listening when when i hear spectrum though and 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 how i associate it with other research doesn't that mean we're just all on the spectrum you know, that's so interesting, actually, because even outside what we've just been talking about, there's great work being done uh, with the genetics of the broader autism uh, phenotype, so the BAP or BAP, I don't know how people refer to it. And that's really interesting. So these are these people that are more quirky but wouldn't um, get an autism diagnosis. And there's actually a genetic basis for that as well. That's coming out by great research done uh, here in Australia. Yeah. In fact, you mentioned something earlier about how it needs to be bad enough to cause some kind of impairment with life. Well, serious or severe like, enough. Yeah. yeah, severe enough to you know, social or occupational impairment, as we say, in all psychiatric diagnosis. Because that's the bright line. We go, if it's causing problems with work or with life, then it's a disorder. If it's not, then it's not. But that depends on what your life is. Hmm. Depends yeah. on other factors in your life, you know, like your socioeconomic status, language skills and, you know, and everything else. So it, we kind of have to draw the line arbitrary a little bit. Yeah, if, now, you, if you down a bottle of Jim Bean a night, then you're an alcoholic, unless you're Keith Richards in case you're a rock star and it's not <laughs> impairing your life. Yeah. <laughs> well, if, if news reports are true, he's given that away now. But, yeah, yeah. So it, stop now? it is very dependent. And I guess <laughs> some of the characteristics um, of autism uh, would lend themselves to certain kinds of works, profession as well, right? Yes, that's some great work looking at how many family members when um, you see children with autism, how many of the family members are mathematicians? How many of them yeah. are engineers? I think Simon um, Baron-Cohen did that work. And there's there's big patterns, there's a lot of bean counters or accountants yeah. in, in those families as well. And these are professions that are, you know, really um, sort of regular professions, structured and um, would value some of the um, traits that are really positive um, that come from having autism. And like you said, that's a part of the diagnostic criteria to have a narrow, restricted range of behaviours or like hobbies or interests even that are quite kind of repetitive and restricted so tracks quite well where are we at in terms of uh uh diagnosis of young people i guess the more the you know society talks about it and recognizes where we're identifying people younger and younger whereas at some point in the not too distant past people weren't being diagnosed is that true to say yeah that's absolutely true so i think people were slipping under the radar and they were just a bit different but then when you think back when you were growing up you might have known people who now would be diagnosed with autism so where we are now um very interestingly we've got one in 59 school-aged children are thought to be diagnosed with autism so i'm pulling those figures from where we 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 pull them from in research and probably in in clinical profession and that's from the the u.s center of disease um, control and so they did a survey and that was the number of children that have been diagnosed with autism um, in a whole lot of different populations. So it's really high and it does seem to be um, increasing. We get even higher figures in some studies, but the main reason for that is this increased awareness. Mm. And it's a, it is a bit of a trap, isn't it? Because when people see that there's more diagnosis of this happening, it's so tempting to say, well, something's changed, something new has happened that's actually causing this mm -hmm. disorder to to kind of occur where it's actually, you know, we're just becoming far more aware, like you said. Three. Triple. Ah. Welcome back to uh, Radiotherapy with myself, panel beater, uh, Dr Sharma, and our special guest, Dr um, Elise Hill from RMIT's Neurodevelopment and Health and Disease Research Program. 
Viom, is something uh, burning question on your mind? Yes. Now, something came to my mind in the break, which is uh, a lot of patients who do are on the uh, autism spectrum or have an autism spectrum disorder, gut symptoms are very common. There's a lot of other things that are common, but you know, you're, you're d- researching the gut-brain axis and how it relates to um, uh, and how it relates to, to patients with autism. Um, you know, I'm fascinated to know that, of course, there's the gut symptoms in in autism maybe not kind of not so surprising because we've had an increased understanding recently of how the brain can affect the gut but the surprise recently has been that the reverse can kind of happen too so can you tell us a bit more about like potentially kind of the cause of autism and how it relates to the gut and you know the relationship vice versa yeah 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 of course so there's quite a lot known about the brain changes that happen in autism that's what most people have been researching but Basically, we were very interested with this idea that, you know, the gut problems could even be due to neurons not talking to each other properly. And that's because we knew there was this big second brain in our guts. And so what we've done is we've taken mice that have the autism muta- and autism mutation in them and we've had a really close look at that second brain and how those neurons communicate to each other and whether those mice have got gut problems. And that's really informative because we found some gut problems and then that sort of suggests that yes that second brain could be causing gut problems in people that have that same mutation. So what kind of gut problems are you finding in these mice? Well fairly similar actually to um, they're mice they're not people but similar to what's been shown in patients but I'll have to you know qualify that because really the gut symptoms like in any disorder they're really varied. Absolutely. So you might have yeah and I'm sure you've got um, experience with your with your patients um, with that. So you might have alternating diarrhoea and um, constipation. So, you know, people think, oh, how can you have both? They might be alternating and that might be stemming from the same problem. You might have vomiting, you might have nausea, pain and bloating and things like that. So we can't check all those things in the mice. But what we're set up to do is to check how the contractions in the gut are working. And we can also do these really neat experiments where we put these live mice in and give them an X-ray every so often and we can follow... Um, how um, food or substances get through the gut and how quickly they get through. And we see that the mice that have the mutation, it shoots through their gut compared to the mice that don't have a mutation. So, you know, really concrete evidence that there's something different going on there. That's really interesting to know that there's perhaps then something intrinsic happening with patients who have an autism spectrum disorder who have gut symptoms. It's potentially what due to the same genetic issues that are actually causing... Uh, the autism and also the gut symptoms. Well, that's right. We've just recently shown that. Um, so we've just recently published a paper showing that, that the mutation that everyone knows about, it's very well studied, it's the first gene mutation that was associated with autism in people. It's expressed in the brain, it changes brain function, but we've shown that it's expressed in, in the neurons that are in the gut as well and changes the gut function separate to the brain. So how does that gene mutation that you're talking about, how does that? How do we believe currently that that causes autism, like the, the brain symptoms anyway? Like how, how do we think that happens? Well, I have to sort of step back a little bit and just tell you that the, the gene mutation that we're working on, it's one of very, very many. So there are hundreds, but they sort of group into a similar um, functional group. So let's call it Velcro. So it's part of the Velcro that sort of sticks the neurons together. So it keeps them close together so they can muni- communicate. And when you tweak that Velcro slightly, uh, the neurons can still communicate, but they're not quite right. They're not getting the message across in exactly the same way as um, if the Velcro wasn't disrupted. So we think that the neurons are not quite communicating properly and there's subtle changes as a result of that in the gut function. Mm. Right. So we're essentially kind of talking about a 
problem with the connections of these wires, these these brain wires we often kind of talk about. So the Velcro you're talking about here presumably is like the the molecules that communicate between the the, the nerves. Like so the they're ne- on the edges of the cells and um, they really do reach out and latch onto each other. And so this is not the the actual chemical messenger that makes cells talk to each other. Okay. But they're keeping cells close. So oh, that's so why the we, attachment between yeah. the wires. Okay. Yeah. Right. So if you mess with that, it might the the cells might get too far apart and the message will be too weak or it'll be too they might get too close. So mm. we're playing with that. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. What does this um, mean for so? Sorry, tongue tied there. Most research on autism up to about now has been on the grey matter in your head. Is that right? That is true. Right. There's lots and lots of it. Yep. So um, is the pendulum swinging all to the gut or is, is there is research trying to accommodate attention to both simultaneously? Where, where are things at with those sorts of questions? So I think broadly this is really a new frontier for research. So you might have seen in the mainstream media there's a lot of stuff about gut brain, there's a lot of stuff about microbes. You know, you think about the Parkinson's um, mm. disorder and people talking about maybe that originates in the gut, um, even uh, implications for Alzheimer's and multiple sclerosis, things like that. So this is a broader change in the research um, um, focus at the moment. And what I can say too is we're really lucky in Australia. The pioneers of gut neuroscience are from Australia. Yay. But you you know that, right? No, I did not know that. (laughs) No, there's a massive hot spot. So there's some great... um, original neurophysiologists that um, discovered, you know, different types of neurons and how they talk to each other in the gut in Melbourne and also there's a hotspot in Adelaide. There are, of course, people overseas as well, but we are so lucky in Melbourne um, to have this, you know, fantastic expertise. So we're able to look at this uh, neuroscience gut um, aspect and relate that to a lot of these different disorders. And that's that's also what my lab does. As well as looking at autism, we can apply this to different disorders. So um, that's that's where things are changing. Um, and in autism, yes, there's now a focus on the gut as well. So what does this... What um, It's all unfolding in front of us, so there's probably no firm answer here, but what does um, future treatment look like? What, what are... The, Where's that going? Yeah, so that's... Um, look, it's, it's a really intense area of study, like you say. So what we're able to do is look at is look at what's changed in the nervous system and we've found some potential targets and so that's where we'll think of um, uh, future development of drugs to target those particular... We call them receptors that are in the nervous system. So that's ongoing. Um, but then there's also this idea of the nervous system interacting with bacteria and I think that's maybe where, you, where you're getting yeah. at. Mm. So it's big unknown, really big unknown... So what we do know is bacteria alters mood and behaviour. We, we do know that's true, but the details are so shady. Yeah, as right. Yet. Is that is that um, uh, are you in other words saying it's hard to know whether the gut health is a symptom of autism or it causes autism? Yeah, so that's pretty tough. So. Look, I'm a neuroscientist. I'm going to tell you that I think it's a gene mutation yeah, in the nervous right. system. <laughs> okay? Yeah. <laughs> but the way we're looking at it, we also found differences in our mice that were identical twins apart from this one mutation, but they had different microbes. So we're thinking, we know microbes can change mood and behaviour, we don't quite know how, but maybe one day we can tweak that mood and behaviour and improve quality of life. We won't be able to change the gene mutation yeah. by changing bacteria, but we might be able to improve quality of life so we're looking at that aspect but there's a hell of a lot of work to do to figure out what's in the bacteria what's good what's bad what's having those effects yeah it's part of the challenge isn't it because um in terms of the bacteria i guess the microbiome i mean there's just so 
many <laughs> is one issue. We've literally got probably trillions, ten, trillions, yeah, literally like ten times. I think the the number of uh, cells of you know, the microbiome compared to the human body, um, and in terms of what they are, because a lot of these things you can't grow in a petri dish. There's a lot of really completely undiscovered species, and we often talk about gut bacteria, but there's lots of other things. There's viruses, and fungi, fungi, mm-hmm. and phages, and and all this stuff. And uh, it's it's very interesting to me because the the mechanism always sounds so plausible. It's very kind of seductive to kind of get carried away and go, well, that might cause this, and if that's affecting the mood, then maybe eating this will fix fix this issue. Whereas, in terms of actually collating the evidence, it's a really difficult thing to do. It is, and I think that's another reason why it's exploded recently because we've got this uh, the, all these advances in gene sequencing. So you were right; you can't grow a lot of these bacteria, but what you can do. You can get the gene sequence. And then there's really clever people who can um, predict what the function of those genes were. And so that's why it's exploded as well with things like the Human Genome Project. And um, that's what we do in collaboration with environmental microbiologists who can analyse a really complex population of bacteria by their gene sequences. Right. So if the gene sequencing technology is what's allowed this kind of explosion to happen. So that's, that's why we're Absolutely. hearing about it now. Yeah, that's right. It's yeah. very interesting. Yeah. You um, uh, made what um, I couldn't take as a flippant remark. You, know, you said, as a neuroscientist, I will explain it this way. What are the debates? Where are we at? Um, so from a geneticist's point of view, are they going to think of it differently? Um, okay. Well, I guess it, it depends. Yeah, the geneticists are analysing huge numbers of patients. Like, you know, you when in the introduction you were talking about scientific um, statistic mm-hmm. um, power and you were saying that you, you need to have a large number of subjects in studies. So the geneticists are analysing hundreds and thousands of people with certain diseases and with without to try and pick out what the susceptibility genes might be. And it's proving really difficult with disorders like autism because there's so many genes. Mm-hmm. So... They will tell you that, yep. <laughs> that muddy picture, uh-huh. because that's what they do. Um, but we've honed in on just one of those rare diseases, um, uh, rare genes, and so we're looking at the mechanisms of that. So what I can say is, matter of fact, mice with the gene mutation have changes in the gut, mice without don't, and everything else is the same. They eat the same food, they're in the same cage, um, they're doing everything the same. So I can tell you that this mutation in the nervous system certainly has an effect on the gut. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back to uh, Radio Therapy on Triple R. You're with myself, panel beater, Dr. Sharma, and our special guest, Dr. Elisa Hill. Dr. Hill, uh, you know, you mentioned before how Australia's a huge hotspot for research to do with you know, the second brain and uh, all things neurological to do with the gut. I'm always fascinated to, to find out about how these things start off because if it's not a completely you know, kind of established, I'm not saying it's not an established field, um, but when it's a new thing, like how does that, how do you come to it? Like uh, what made you go into this? Oh, it's always just chance really and meeting someone that you think would be a, a good collaborator. Actually, the way that we ended up collaborating, um, looking at microbiome and uh, neuroscience is that I met uh, the collaborator, uh, Associate Professor Ashley Franks at La Trobe University, great guy. And we, I said, look, come on, it's never going to be the microbiome. It's, it's a nervous system mutation. There's going to be no difference in the poo from these mice, this mouse model of autism. And he said, oh, come on, no, just give me some of the poo. And I went, okay, all right. And so there we go. That was, I think, six years ago. 
and now we found uh, differences in the microbes as well. Give me the poo. Yep, that was it. <laughs> Great line. Um, Start of a long friendship. <laughs> yeah. um, so moving on uh, from specifically on autism, uh, can we look at uh, mood and behaviour? There's some talk around the relationship there, isn't there? Yeah, well, that sort of goes back to microbiome and microbes. And um, I think the really compelling evidence for that is that in mice that are raised without any microbes, so germ-free mice raised in a bubble, um, we know that their behaviour and their anxiety traits, if you like, are different. And then when you add microbes, it doesn't really matter which ones at all, you change that um, behaviour. So... Um, and we also know in people, actually I think there have been some studies of people eating yoghurt, for example, and that changes their, their um, feedback on questionnaires and how they're feeling as well. On people too, which is, you know, the People, that's the good test, step. isn't it? Amazing, yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I'm guessing the theory here is that the, the hormone production that kind of occurs in the gut or the signalling that, uh, that occurs in the gut potentially, what we know for a fact changes things in... Uh, levels of serotonin and and GABA and a lot other kind of neurotransmitters, uh, but what's what's interesting here is so the the levels in these things kind of elevate and kind of go down, but there's something else involved in the gut brain axis because it's probably more accurately I guess called the gut brain microbiome axis. The uh, axis the the gut bacteriophages are actually intimately involved. Uh, in in this process as well and this and the immune function of the body and, and, and lots more. Yeah, so we've realised uh, not so long ago, unfortunately, but we have realised that we can't just study the gut in isolation. It's, it's um, really important to have those bacteria in close proximity to the gut because like all the reasons you just said, they're altering the neurotransmitters, they're releasing... Uh, little uh, molecules that are affecting the immune system and we've got this really active immune system racing up and down the inside of the gut as well, just keeping that barrier intact. So all of this is interlinked with how we feel and um, how we behave and how our gut works. Fascinating. Um, And so this is where we start talking about things like probiotics and prebiotics and and that's what, you know, there's some kind of uh, magical recipe, I suppose, hypothetically, that we should have in our uh, in our guts for optimal health. I love the word magical because it's pretty magical <laughs> at the moment because even though we can buy things off the shelf that tell us they're going to do things, I can tell you that the science is just not there yet. We there's still so much work to do. Like, what's the good what's the good thing in in a fecal sample or poo or what's the bad thing? Um, we don't know. So. There are, of course, um, disorders where we really need to do what we call faecal transplants, which people will have heard of, and the main uh, reason for doing that is people that are really at the end of the line that have an infection um, of Clostridium difficile, which is often something you pick up in the hospital. And so the, it's shown that faecal transplants are really effective you, um, for getting these people back online. But as, as apart from that, it, the science is not yet there for us to understand exactly what's working inside um, a sample of faeces that um, can help someone else. Hmm. And like you mentioned, even with, with faecal transplants, I mean, one of the issues is getting a sustained benefit from these things because the benefit seems to wear off, you know, kind of relatively soon. And potentially, look, even sooner with things like probiotic drinks. One of the issues is, again, as we mentioned earlier in the segment, um, just a quantity issue. Um, our gut microbiome is just trillions and trillions of organisms and you have your little you know, capsule of, uh, of probiotics. It's making a very temporary 
difference that it's probably not having an effect and if it is you know kind of not for very long and, and it depends on how you take it as well and whether you take it from the top end or whether you take it from the bottom end because you know <laughs> didn't know you could take it from the bottom end oh yeah, yeah. so fecal transplants can be oh, from you the might, bottom end. Yeah. oh i thought you meant like your but, probiotic tablets yeah. i was like really oh okay yeah sure 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 <laughs> yeah someone joked to me about the shape of the yakult bottles that maybe they're made for you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, sorry listeners I'll, I'll never look at a yakult bottle the same way again <laughs> uh yakult oh yeah yeah but um yeah so that's that's, that's another thing about how you how you how you apply it but you're talking about how long that treatment might last I think it's really variable um, and I've heard that um, people who do receive faecal transplants, they might need them uh, every few weeks or they might need them maybe every week. But um, there was an interesting example recently, I think, um, by the lead singer Dave Hoskins of Boy and Bear Band and he found, and it's a sort of a mystery illness as far as I understand it, that he needed faecal transplants every day, found a donor and he's a poo roadie, so he travels with him. <laughs> what? You guys heard about this? So, no, th- no. So no they tell us more. And he's just giving him his poo. Yeah, so he's like a like an extra member of the band. And so they had to go across. They hadn't um, recorded an album for four years, and that's why. And they had to go across to Nashville or somewhere to record their album, so they had to take the poo roadie with him. As wow. Well, pack the guitar tech. Pack the poo roadie. He was joking about getting him on the bass as well, but I don't know if they've done that yet. Yeah. <laughs> How about the, the future is looking strange. If, yeah. Uh, yeah, roadies are, <laughs> if they're are a thing. A thing. Um, lots of occupational but, options. But I guess the, the punchline <laughs> is that it's obviously working for him. Is yeah, the, but, yeah, but look, right? the science is not there. I, I say that as well. This is a really interesting story. It's a really extreme story, and I was really impressed with the way that he spoke about it. And I think his diagnosing doctor was Professor Karen Phelps, actually, in Sydney. Uh-huh. Um, but... Again, he's really lucky. He's hit on that. He's probably tried a lot of things and it worked, but we don't know why. And yeah. so that's our job really as scientists. Yeah. yeah. And and I guess when we are looking at the scientific endeavour to resolve a lot of these issues, the first set of answers we are going to get, and hopefully will get, is going to be for the things that are more severe or cause more morbidity. Hence, you know, looking at autism spectrum disorders um, because the other end of the, the spectrum people uh, often are looking for quick fixes for their, I guess, more minor ailments. Uh, maybe not something that's severe as, say, depression or any anxiety disorder, uh, but just you know, kind of feeling a little bit low energy, a little bit down. And, look, might altering the gut bacteria, you know, cause some changes there? Maybe, it but... That, might that do harm as well, though. You might, exactly. Yeah. And the thing is, the, the real solid scientific answers on that stuff are so, 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 so far away, and yet there's kind of no shortage of an industry that's willing to supply a fix for these ailments when all the hard work's been done very rigorously by people like you uh, for the more severe disorders. And so it's, it's, it's very interesting for me to see as a general practitioner, you know, this disparity between you know, every time you're speaking about a therapy, you're giving us these caveats of, well, you know, this has been done in mice or the research is still very early on. And on the other hand, we're presented with this certainty mm. about, yeah. uh, about you know, you take this, it will mm. improve. Look, there is research showing that if you have this probiotic, you will improve. And the research is done in mice, three of them, you know, <laughs> on the other side of the planet. And uh, yeah. it, it, it's difficult. That actually reminds me of a big study that just came out from one of the biggest labs in the world that work with microbiome on mice. So on mice, everybody. And they are at pains to say that the microbiome is not causing autism. In this particular study they did on mice, that they gave mice um, poo mm-hmm. from boys with severe autism and they saw some behaviours 
arise in the mice that might be related to autism but they were at pains to say this is not the cause so I think that's really responsible and lots and lots needs to be done and they actually said look they think that it's interacting with something else and so that something else just for example could be a gene mutation that those mice might have where are we? so we've been focusing on the on the mice where are we at with clinical trials that are involving people in respect to the gut microbiome micro, yeah. um, there are some fecal transplants being done mm-hmm. by um, there are some done and the person who's been doing the most of them is actually in Sydney Tom Barodi. Mm-hmm. And so the outcomes that there are some papers and the outcomes I can't give you the details but that it's it's starting to happen and it has to be done in a really uh, regulated fashion sure. and, and that is starting to happen. Good one. Well, time has um, really fine. Just while we um, have you here, a gratuitous question um, on the allied expertise on autism about vaccines. Vaccines do not cause autism. There it is, folks. <laughs> you heard it here first, or probably many times. Um, you get that question a bit, I imagine. Yeah, it's something that comes up, and I think it's people um, feeling unsure and not having access to the right information. The information is there. They're out many times in thousands of people, America, internationally, Australian studies, showing that it does not, um, vaccines do not cause autism. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.